Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a prayer of a person who really understood that God was sovereign, that He was indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're not going to actually study this prayer in depth. It's going to be a topical sermon. But uh, this would be a, a passage that would be worthwhile analyzing just to see how He used the Scriptures, how He appealed to God's attributes, how He... Uh, just crafted his prayer in a God-centered way. Daniel 9, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which, with, which, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, Incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. 
For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. Father God, we come to you and it is our desire that we might grow week by week as we hear your word, as we worship uh, and as we uh, sing your word and uh, pray your word, we just ask, O oh God, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that you would enable me to faithfully uh, preach the word, and Father, that the Spirit would take that word and make it uh, at home in our heart. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to admit to you up front that prayer has been one of the hardest disciplines that I have ever engaged in. And it's puzzling when you think about it because prayer ought to be as easy as breathing for the Christian. Uh, it ought to be one of the most natural things uh, that our heart uh, offers up to God. And God has given me many, many answers to prayer, some of them miraculous answers. And you'd think, man, I'd be highly motivated to pray. And yet, many times that is simply not the case. And many saints of old have testified to the same difficulty with prayer. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. That's a remarkable statement for a man who's really known to be a, a spiritual man. He said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. The famous theologian Alexander White said, there is nothing that we are so bad at all our days as prayer. And one of the reasons I think that that is true is that Satan is very fearful of our prayers and he is doing everything that he can to keep us from praying. Now, just by itself, that comment ought to clue you into the fact Maybe prayer is pretty important after all, as Satan's doing everything he can to keep people from praying. But you couple Satan's temptations and our own flesh's opposition to prayer, and you've got powerful resistance uh, to prayer in the Christian life. Now, next week, Lord willing, I want to talk about why we find it so difficult and what are some practical ways in which we can get over those difficulties and we're going to be looking at how some of the saints of old have given us advice on how to conquer this. Uh, and it's advice from the Scripture. But today I want to address a nagging feeling that some people have that prayer really is not that important. Uh, sure, they understand when James says you have not because you ask not. And they affirm that theologically. But deep down, they still feel, do our prayers really make that much different? difference? How many of you have heard the expression, if God is sovereign, why pray? Okay, a few of you have heard that. This is actually one of the most frequent objections to Calvinism uh, that I have heard down through the years. And when you think about it, it really does on the surface have some sense of legitimacy. It's not a legitimate objection, but it, it, it seems like it is legitimate. And I want you to think about that for a moment. If God has predestined everything that comes to pass, how can my prayers make any difference? I can't change God's mind. It has been set from the foundation of the world. And if his providence is his working out of every detail of his plan, then there doesn't seem to be any place for prayer. 
If I'm asking God to do something He has not planned to do, then I'm asking Him to change His predestination. Impossible. Okay? And if I'm asking Him to do something He has not planned to do, then what is the point? <laughs> you know, he's, um, if I'm asking Him to do something He has already planned, there's no point in that. If I'm asking Him to do something that He has not planned, it seems either way you're kind of stuck. So why not just relax and let God do whatever He's going to do? This is the objection people bring against Calvinists praying. Now, we're going to be seeing in a moment that that is a gross misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. But I think it might be helpful that any conception that Christians have had of God has the same paradox or even a greater paradox uh, and puzzling uh, concept with regard to prayer. Take the Arminian position. They deny that God determines the future. Instead, they say God simply foreknows the future. And because God has given man a free will, God cannot force people to change. And so we might ask, why pray then? Is our prayer now going to cause God to force people's hearts to change? No. Well, then why are we praying? Why would God not be motivated to change them if he could change them apart from our prayers? Um, uh, wouldn't God be just as motivated to save people whether we pray or whether we don't pray? Uh, one writer objected to Arminianism saying, No Arminian can consistently say that God foreknew all things, yet teach that prayer is of any use. We would ask the Arminian, Should we pray for the salvation of those whom God foreknew would be damned? If God foreknew they would be damned, they will indeed be damned irrespective of our prayers. Now, we're going to be seeing later it really is a fallacy, and it's a similar fallacy to the objection they bring against Calvinism. There are some legitimate objections to Arminianism, but anyway, he goes on, he says, we would then also ask, should we pray for those whom God foreknew would be saved? If so, why? Would they not be saved anyway, seeing that God foreknew they would be? Why pray at all then? You see, even if God does not determine the future, the fact that all things are known about the future means that the future cannot be changed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be foreknown. Okay? Other, uh, this is true whether God is sovereign or not. And yet, people want to believe when they are praying that their prayer does change things. Okay? If God has given men a free will, and if God will not change man's will, why pray for man's salvation? What can God do that he has not already done? But even if the Arminian believed, okay, when you pray, God can do something to change people and move them to salvation, then the question comes, well, how come he doesn't do it even if we don't pray? It seems kind of unfair that God would send somebody to hell just because you and I forgot to pray for his salvation. And so people are really troubled with this. In fact, there's been quite a number of Arminians who have been so disturbed by this line of reasoning that they've abandoned Arminianism and they've gone to open theism. An open theist believes that God cannot foreknow the future. He does not control men's wills. And thus God can make mistakes and he can be frustrated in his will. The future is open. Okay, the future can be changed. They insist that for God to be loving, God cannot plan our entire future. Instead, what he does is he waits for us to act. And then based on the things that we do, he will know a little bit of the future and he'll be able to respond to us. Since they claim that the world is not controlled, they believe that our actions can be significant and our prayers can change things. You know, this is even worse. 
If God cannot change men's wills, why pray to Him for their salvation? Why not pray to somebody who can change their wills? Let's pray to the people themselves. Let's uh, try to see if we can convince them to change their wills. And so it's really even more destructive to prayer. But let's take one step further. If we say that our prayers influence and change God, then we have gone beyond open theism into the realm of magic. Okay, Magic believes that there is a power in words or activities that can manipulate and can change the gods. If we say the right things and we say it in the right way with the right words and with the right actions accompanying it, it gives us power and perhaps gives the gods power. And I use the term gods on purpose because any uh, magical conception of prayer brings up a concept of God that is so foreign from the Bible, you can't even use the term God with regard to it. And yet, how many times do Christians treat prayer as if it's magic? If I pray loud enough, or if I weep just the right way in in accompanying my prayers, or if I have enough people around me that are praying, or if I do the right things in conjunction with prayer, then God's got to make a difference. It's going to change things. Well, here's the problem. We don't make prayer work. God's the one who works. God is sovereign. And prayer is a submission of our will to His sovereign will. Prayer is an acknowledgement. He's in charge. He's the first one that we ought to go to. Okay? And I hope to show in today's sermon that if God is not sovereign, there really would be no point in praying. But if God is indeed sovereign, as He says He is in the, in the Word of God, we will have every motivation to be stirred up to prayer and to be involved in continuous prayer. And we'll see if I'm successful in this uh, venture, but this is my goal to convince you that the sovereignty of God is uh, necessary uh, to uh, being able to pray consistently. First of all, let's take a look and see that the Scripture does indeed link divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And I'm just going to use the passage we read in Daniel 9, not look at the whole prayer, but we're just going to look at verses 1 through 2. And when I read these, it ought to bring to your mind that um, there's something strange going on here. Yes, the prayer is an awesome prayer that teaches us on how we ought to fill our mouths with God-centered arguments, not man-centered arguments. Uh, It's an awesome prayer that shows us how to pray with passion, how to pray with fervency, how to pray with confidence. But look at verses 1 through 2. You might wonder, with these two verses being true, why does Daniel bother to pray at all? Because what he's praying for has been already promised will occur in this year. Okay, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. This was a prophecy made in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. It was reiterated in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Let me just read one of those. It says, In this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And there's other passages that say at the end of those 70 years, they would come back uh, out of exile into Israel. Well, now it's the end of 70 years. And so Daniel begins to pray in real earnest. And you might wonder why. 
It's predestined that it's going to happen. God said it's going to happen in this year. Why bother to pray? God is a God who cannot lie. Their return is guaranteed. But Daniel realizes that God predestines the means as well as the ends. And Leviticus 26 says, if there is no prayer of confession on part of Israel, Israel will not come back into the land when they are cast out into exile. Read in Jeremiah 18 sometime, and it says when God pronounces evil against a nation and they repent, then he will relent of that evil. But if he pronounces good to a nation and they rebel against him, then he's going to bring Judgment against that nation. And so Daniel is absolutely convinced without repentance on the part of Israel, there is no way Israel is coming back out of exile. He is just as convinced of that point as he is convinced of the point that God says they're going to come back in 70 years. Both of those are important. So he prays. Now, one of the problems with uh, some Calvinists who are very passive is that they are only half Calvinists. They believe God has predestined the very end result over here, but they're not as convinced that God has predestined all of the means are absolutely essential to that end being accomplished. And so they're passive. They think, why bother to, uh, why, why bother to pray? But you simply will not have the goal without the means. James says, you have not because you do not ask. Over and over again in the Scripture, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are put together. In fact, they're put together in such a way, sometimes in the very same verse, that it indicates you could not be responsible if God was not sovereign. Let me give you some examples. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, here comes the reason why we can work our sanctification out, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The reason we can work anything out is because God's already made us willing. He's already empowered us to be able to do that. And he even uses means like Paul's exhortations and perhaps their pastor's exhortations. Get active, Philippians, uh, to get these people to be active. Here's another scripture, Leviticus 20, verses 7 through 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, if God is the one who sanctifies us, who makes us holy, why does he bother to tell us to be holy? Why does he command us to keep his commandments? Just do it to me, Lord. But you see, those two are always held together. Divine sovereignty is what enables us to be holy. God's the one who makes us holy, but God commands us to be active. He never pits responsibility against divine sovereignty. Both are true. And thus, in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon prays at the dedication of the kingdom, he not only prays, dedication of the temple, I should say, he not only prays that God would forgive his backsliding people, but that God would turn their hearts to repent because he knows their repentance is absolutely essential if they're going to uh, be forgiven. No one can pray unless God pours out upon him a spirit of prayer and supplication. But unless we pray, there won't be any answer. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. <clears throat> It is our full belief that God has foreknown and predestined everything that happeneth in heaven above or in the earth beneath, 
and that the foreknown station of a reed by the river is as fixed as the station of a king, and the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. Predestination embraceth the great and the little and reacheth unto all things. The question is, wherefore pray? Might it not as logically be asked, wherefore breathe, eat, move, or do anything? We have an answer which satisfies us, namely, that our prayers are in the predestination and that God has as much ordained His people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we are producing links in the chain of ordained facts. Destiny decrees that I should pray. I pray. Destiny decrees that I shall be answered. And the answer comes to me. In fact, once that relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is understood, it gives us every reason to pray. In Acts 4, verses 23 through 31, we see the apostles are fueled in their prayer by the knowledge that everything that's happened to them has been totally predestined by God. It's a, it's a wonderful prayer, very God-centered prayer. And let me read it to you. It's a prayer that is fueled by a knowledge of the sovereignty of God. Being let go, they went to their own companions, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so here's a people that knows God is in charge, and it gives them the boldness to speak. It gives them the boldness to serve. They know if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, why not pray to this kind of a God? Because this God is powerful. He controls all things. God's kingdom purposes were invincibly moving forward and these people wanted to be on the cusp of the wave and in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. What a privilege. They want to be part of that, but they know that the only way that they can be a part of that privilege is as they offer up their wills to God in prayer. And so why pray if God is sovereign? Well, point one, point A, I should say, negatively, it's certainly not to inform him of anything. Matthew 6, verse 8 tells us not to pray like the pagans do. And his reason is this. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So the purpose of prayer is clearly not to inform. He already knows everything you're going to pray. Psalm 139 says God knows the end from the beginning. And before the words are even formed on your lips when you are praying, God knows exactly what you're going to be praying. Now, David still prays that psalm. That's his prayer, but he doesn't do it to inform God. In fact, he's blown away with the knowledge God knows everything that's going to happen in this earth. He knows everything. And yet, David's prayer is still a passionate prayer. Why? 
because his heart has been gripped by the Lord's heart. Nor does David pray that prayer to change God's plan. He tells God, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written the days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. Every day of David's life was mapped out from before the foundation of the world. And so why pray? Well, in John 15, Jesus indicates, first of all, that it's an evidence of life. It's an evidence that you are a true branch that's been grafted or put into the vine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, nowhere in that parable of the true vine are we commanded to bear fruit. What are we commanded to do? We're commanded to abide in the vine, right? Many times we are focusing on the things that we have to do and we, we have the idea, you know, that if we, uh, if we um, uh, strive hard enough, we can accomplish something. One of the reasons we're so prayerless is because we're convinced there's a lot of things that we can do in our own strength. But just imagine a vine, you know, it's got all these branches sticking out there and this vine is just striving to produce grapes, you know, you know, trying to get those grapes out. That's not what a vine does. Grapes automatically grow if it's united to the vine. The sap is what gives life and brings those grapes into the vine branches, right? <coughs> and so... We need to recognize <clears throat> that apart from dependency upon him, we cannot produce anything. We produce grapes by abiding in the vine, by prayer, by dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And verses seven through eight indicates when we abide in him, we can ask anything that we want and it will be accomplished. And so prayer is a sign of life. It's a sign we are a genuine branch abiding in the vine. Second, prayer is an evidence that we believe God is sovereign where prayerlessness is an evidence of self-sufficiency and pride that we really don't think that we need the Lord. Otherwise, we'd be calling out the Lord, wouldn't we? Prayer is a sign that we really believe God is sovereign, we are not, and that we are humble before Him. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, it takes humility to pray. It does not come naturally to the prideful human heart. <clears throat> reason we're so prone to prayerlessness is because our hearts are filled with pride. They cannot see the greatness of our sovereign God. We really think we can do it on our own. And so can you see how the sovereignty of God is consistent with prayer? And prayerlessness actually is a belief that we're sovereign, that we are independent. Thirdly, we pray because God the sovereign commands us to. First Thessalonians commands us, pray without ceasing. Christ said, watch therefore and pray. And over and over again in the scriptures, we are commanded by our sovereign to pray. Now, think about this. What kind of an idiotic view of sovereignty is it that says, because God is sovereign, I could just ignore everything he says. He's got to do it all. That's a ridiculous, utterly illogical to say God is sovereign and I can ignore his commandments to pray. Right? If he's truly sovereign, and if I really believe in his sovereignty, I'm going to say yes, sir, to everything that he commands me to do. Far from being inconsistent with sovereignty, it's an acknowledgement of sovereignty. Fourthly, we pray because he loves us. John 16 says, In that day you shall ask in my name, for the Father himself loves you. Now, 
Does a couple who is in love really need to force themselves to talk with each other? They don't need to force themselves to talk to each other. They're looking for every excuse they can to talk with each other. And that's the same way it is with us and with God. We love to talk with Him because it's the expression of our love to Him. It's the expression of His love to us. And by the way, I should point out, prayer is not simply asking. A lot of people define prayer as asking. Asking God for things is the smallest portion of prayer. Prayer is far more than that. It is communion with the God that we love. It is, it is the expression of our awe, our adoration, our wonder that this sovereign who created this universe would deign to do anything in my life. He loves me. He loves me. What an incredible reason for me to pray to this sovereign, to commune with him. And so we learn of his will as we pray the scriptures. Uh, we learn to have hope in him as we pray his promises. Uh, we learn to submit our wills to him as we pray his commandments. Uh, his word is upon our lips as we talk back and forth because our heart is captivated by what he is. The sovereignty of God does not annul. It magnifies and makes such love even more amazing. In Psalm 63, David expresses half a dozen further reasons that drove him to pray to God. And the chief one was that he had a hunger for God. You see, once you have tasted of God's goodness, you want more. Once you have experienced God's power working in, in your life, Paul's goal becomes your goal, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, you know, and the fellowship of his sufferings. You desire more and more of him. So here's what David says in Psalm 63. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. For I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. I think you can understand why a hunger for God would be totally consistent with a belief in a sovereign God. We want more and more of the one whom our soul desires. And so are you beginning to see a pattern? Biblical prayer is God-centered. It is a means of seeking God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As W. Bingham Hunter said, Paul's experience highlights the simple but profound truth that prayer is not the means by which we get what we want. Rather, it is a means that God uses to give us what he wants. And the more we pray the scriptures, the more our heart will begin to yearn that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another reason we pray is that it brings delight to God. Now, this is something that's so encouraging to me because when I was uh, earlier in my younger years, I often wondered if I was pestering God, if he would be upset with me by constantly bringing my prayers to him. But this verse indicates God delights in our prayers. Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, 
But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Do you want to delight the Lord? Well, then pray. He says he delights in our prayers. Now, that's just an amazing thing to me that I can bring delight to God in anything that I do. And this motivates me when I realize God delights in the bringing of our prayers. Now, while we're speaking of delight, I should also mention that as hard as it is sometimes to struggle to get into prayer, once we do get into prayer, not only does it bring delight to God's heart, but it brings delight to our heart as well. In Job uh, verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 26, Job says, not only does God delight in our prayers, but it goes on to say that when we pray, it brings us joy. You see, the kind of sovereignty we deal, we're dealing with is a gracious, loving, a very generous sovereignty. It's a sovereignty that looks out for our good and takes joy in our fellowship. Another reason we pray is because we love our sovereign's kingdom and God has joined, uh, called us to join the intercessions of the Son and of the Spirit on behalf of that kingdom. Now, Isaiah 59.16 gives one of the most amazing anthropomorphisms uh, in the Bible. And anthropomorphism is where uh, the writer of the Scripture is trying to describe something about God that is indescribable. And the way he does it is by likening God to a human or to something that a human does. See, God doesn't have hands and arms and feathers, but God uses images like that to give us a warm feeling and taste of something about God that's incomprehensible, and yet it's communicating to us in language that we can appreciate and that we can understand. Well, in this passage, it speaks of God the Father who knows everything, can never be blindsided as being astonished and surprised that no one is praying. Here's how it goes. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Uh, He's astonished. What is going on here? There's no people interceding. There aren't any prayer warriors out there. And so God says, okay, well, I'm going to provide the intercessors that are needed. I'm going to send the Son to intercede and I'm going to send the Spirit to intercede. And so in verses 17 through 18, He sends the Son. He sends the Spirit to lift up the standard in verse 19. But what's uh, then more surprising, because of what the Son and the Spirit have done in Isaiah 62, He says, now I'm calling upon the whole church to join them in this intercession. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. This is Isaiah speaking. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. And in the next verses, you see the goal of his prayers is to see every nation converted and submitting to King Jesus. This is talking about in the future, you know, uh, when Christ comes. Uh, But then in verses 6 through 7, he invites the church to never give God rest until he accomplishes this. Now, I would never have dared to use such bold language if God himself did not use it. But he says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. And so God the Father is encouraging us. He's saying, you're not pestering me. 
Give me no rest. Keep praying. Keep praying. I love it when you pray to me. In fact, I'm going to send my son to make your prayers acceptable before my throne. And I'm going to send the spirit of God into your hearts to intercede from within you to make your prayers acceptable. And so this is an incredible encouragement. God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit have all conspired together in their sovereignty to enable our prayers to have significance. Here's how Charles Spurgeon worded it. God the Holy Ghost writes our prayers. God the Son presents our prayers. And God the Father accepts our prayers. And with the whole Trinity to help us in it, what cannot our prayers perform? Now, isn't that encouraging? To me, that is so encouraging. I love this sovereign God that we pray to. But the last reason I want to give for why we must pray is that without prayer, God will not advance the cause of Christ's kingdom. He will not. He has ordained that the kingdom will go forward on the basis of the prayers of the saints. He has linked together Christ's work with our work. He has made Christ the head. He has made us the body. He has made it so that without our prayers, things will not go forward. And so we better submit to the sovereign plan and doing it his way. Now, I as a mere creature, again, would never dare to make this assertion if the Bible had not made it. But over and over, there are statements like the one I quoted in James. You have not because you don't ask. You have not because you ask not. Scripture over and over again puts conditions upon the growth of the church. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now that if, if my people is a divine if, without prayer, expect nothing. The very sovereign who ordains all things has ordained that nothing of any significance will be accomplished in Christ's kingdom if his people are not praying. He's ordained it. It will not happen. He's the sovereign. He says it won't happen. So I can guarantee you, you're not going to have if you don't ask. Now, is that not a good reason to stir us up in prayers? God has guaranteed we will not have if we do not pray. He wants us to be co-laborers together with Christ. And so when Christ is disturbed about the fact that there's all of these sheep without a shepherd, he doesn't just say, well, God's going to provide it somehow. He doesn't say that. He says, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Literally hundreds of times the scripture links divine sovereignty with human responsibility and indicates without the sovereignty, we couldn't be responsible. But you are not you are not obeying or understanding the scriptures if you take human responsibility out of the equation, because that's being only half a Calvinist. God has ordained the means as well as the end. Here's how the Calvinist John Piper puts it. The success of the gospel in church planting depends not only on God's sovereignty, but also on the faithful preaching of the gospel and the faithful prayers of God's people. Prayer is the mysterious means that God has chosen through which he releases the transforming power of the gospel in your life and ministry. Not only has God made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the word, he has also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. God's goal to be glorified will not succeed without the powerful proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel will not be proclaimed in power to all the nations without the prevailing, earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. 
This is the awesome place of prayer in the purpose of God for the world. That purpose won't happen without prayer. And so scripture does not ask the question, if God is sovereign, why pray? Instead, it asks the question, since God is sovereign, why in the world are you not praying? That's the question that the scriptures ask. And next week, we're going to be looking at the obstacles to prayer and why we find this amazing privilege so difficult and how we can overcome uh, that difficulty. But today, let's just say, Lord, I believe that you are sovereign. I submit my knees before you as my sovereign. I want to pray. I want to rejoice in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that even though you created this universe and I'm just a speck on this planet, Yet you love me enough to make my prayers significant in your purposes. I bless you for that. And I'm going to take this prayer privilege seriously. I charge you, brothers and sisters, be men and women of prayer. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that it would not be able to be plucked out of our hearts by Satan as uh, the seed was plucked out of the soil by the birds in that parable. Father, that this word would sink deep into our hearts and we would be stirred up with a power and a passion for prayer, that we would not neglect this. But these reasons surrounding your sovereignty would grip our hearts and motivate us and make us to love the privilege of prayer that you have ushered us into. Father, bless us as we close out this service. In Jesus' name, amen.